Open up your personal copy of the Word of God to Ephesians chapter 3, the third chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, verses 1 through 13 this morning. We're returning to this text. We began it last week, so this is a second message from this text, a message entitled, The Priority of the Local Church, The Priority of the Local Church. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Because the local church was something new and previously unknown until it was revealed by Christ to his holy apostles and prophets, it had to be explained. And it had to be explained, otherwise it would be liable to be misunderstood. And the many letters that make up the correspondence of the New Testament do just that. They explain the local church. They explain this mystery. You know, even in our day, there is a significant confusion among Christians with regard to what is the local church and what are its priorities. Too often, we let the culture define the church and set its agenda. The church is seen as a social club for some. It's seen as a community service organization by others. Some see it as a political action committee. Others a self-help group. But the church of Jesus Christ is none of these. The church of Jesus Christ was established by God for his glory, as a remnant drawn from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and transformed into a new spiritual humanity via their faith union with their living head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that. The church was established by God for his glory, as a remnant drawn from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and transformed into a new spiritual humanity in vital faith union with Jesus Christ, their living head. As such, the church is explained and revealed by the Apostle Paul, using all kinds of metaphors. For example, he speaks of the church as the body of Christ. He reveals the church as the one new man. The brethren. The family of God. The bride of Christ. And God's house God's temple. All of these metaphors and more speak of the closeness within the local church, a closeness among people who formerly were filled with animosity toward both God and one another. And they now relate to each other in a new relationship that has been restored vertically with God and horizontally with each other. 
This is a spiritual reality that is true in principle. And, and thus, in the, it's, but, it's, but it's viewed in, in the context of a local church. In other words, that it's, it's a universal truth that the body of Christ makes up the believers all across the world. But the truth of the matter is, you can't see that body. You see the body of Christ that is, it is localized in a local church. We need to remember that it is the apostolic correspondence here with the, with the local churches in which these metaphors were first developed. When they are used, they were used in letters to, to local fellowships. In other words, they are best understood in the context of a group of believers constituting a local church just like this. This section here in chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, so we pointed out last time, is, a, is an interruption in the flow of the thought of the letter. Verses 1 through 13, it's, it's autobiographical in content. In other words, Paul is, is dictating this letter, and, and he begins to want to talk to them in verse 1 of chapter 3, where he says, for this reason, he wants to, to begin to, to pray for them, but in the process of doing that, he reflects on his own imprisonment for the, the gospel that creates this local church, and that veers him off into a detour of an autobiographical section. He is imprisoned, he says, verse 1, for the sake of you Gentiles. And so he begins to talk about what brings about this imprisonment, what makes this imprisonment worthwhile. You notice down there in, in verse 13, where he says, I don't want you to lose heart at my tribulations. On your behalf, they are your glory. I am imprisoned for your glory. And then in verse 14, as we noted last time, he now gets back to the prayer that he intended to pray in light of the amazing truths of chapter 2 and beginning in verse 11 through the end of the chapter of the one new man in Christ. He wants them to understand that reality, but in the process, he feels compelled to talk to them about his own autobiographical experiences with regard to this amazing truth. So we're here in 3, 1 to 13, and in this section, we noted last time, there are three significant truths that we can find about the priority of the local church. Three significant truths about the priority of the local church that we need to hear. We need to hear them in our day, and we need to hear them so that we can live out the truth of the gospel ourselves with regard to this critical, critical realm of local church. Written to a local church 2,000 years ago, it has definite direct application to us. Last time we introduced the first of those, it was simply this, that the local church is a stewardship that must be fulfilled. The local church is a stewardship that must be fulfilled. We found it in verses 1 through 3 and 7 through 9. 
Now, I'll tell you what, let's do this. Let's, let me read 1 to 13 in its entirety to get the flow of it, and then we'll come back and, and review that first truth. Paul says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of His power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. That first truth there in verses 1 to 3 and 7 through 9 is that the local church is a stewardship, a stewardship that must be fulfilled. The Apostle Paul was directly commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ in Acts 9 to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to bring the message of the saving work of Jesus Christ and its earth-shattering implications to the Gentile world. And he calls it here, in verse 2, his stewardship of grace. The word stewardship, as we looked at last time, can can mean responsibility. And that's what Paul means here. In other words, it is Paul's responsibility to administer God's grace. To administer God's grace. And to administer the grace that he understood here as his God-given task to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, resulting in the planting of local churches. That's why he was saved. That's the commission he had been given. That's what weighed on his life, and that's what drove him for 30 years, ultimately uh, to place his head on the block of a Roman executioner's sword. This was his life commission. This was the stewardship of his life. Now, the notion of, of church planting as a demonstration of God's grace in his life, is found all over Paul's writings. And I'm not going to go there again, because last time we took the time to look them all up. And you saw that that is his repeated theme. It is the grace of God, not the grace that saves us, although it is certainly an implication of the grace that saves us. But when Paul speaks here about the stewardship of God's grace, he is talking about the commission that he has been given. It is a grace commission. It is a gift from God to him 
to accomplish something, and for him it is the planting of local Gentile churches, to see them come to fruition. And this concept of, of God's grace as a, as a stewardship, a, a gift, a commission that needs to be exercised, Paul picks up that thought we saw last time over in chapter 4 and verse 7 there, where he speaks now more widely to the uh, Ephesian church and beyond them and through them to you and I, where he says to each of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he goes on to talk about how you and I have a role to play in the local church. We have been given a, a commission ourselves. We have been, been given the stewardship of a, gift, a grace gift in our lives for which we are, in, we are responsible to exercise that for the building up of the local church. We don't have the, the same responsibility, the same stewardship as the Apostle Paul, in that he was called to, to be that apostolic church planter. But nonetheless, I have responsibility. You have responsibility. We have been given a gift by the Spirit of God, and we are, have a responsibility to use it, exercise the gift. We are to make the church grow, as it were. We are to be involved in the growth of this local church. And because this is a stewardship, because this is a responsibility, then it's, it's weighty. It comes from God to me and to you. And my responsibilities and your responsibilities correspond with our giftedness, but nonetheless, we all have a role to play. We all have a part to play. That's Paul's message in chapter 4, the beginning parts of that chapter. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are we fulfilling the stewardship that has been entrusted to us, the responsibility that has been placed upon us? In other words, is our time, the way we use our time, reflective of our responsibilities with regard to this local church? Not the church universally, not the church generally, but this church, because this is the place where the Spirit of God has placed us. Does our calendar, if we look at our calendar, does it reflect the stewardship of grace? Beyond that, if we look at our treasurer, as it were, in other words, our checkbook, our bank account, our wallet, however you want to say it, the, the stewardship of finances, do they reflect the reality that we have a responsibility here? Can we give and should we give beyond this place? That's between you and the Spirit. But there is a primary responsibility here. And the giving needs to begin here for the work of this local church and the building up of this local church and the sending out of missionary commitments from this local church. This is part of the responsibility. The use of our talents. God has made us unique. Every single one of us has something to bear, something to, to bring to the party, as it were, and the question to ask ourselves is, are we administering those talents for the benefit of this local body? Are we involved? And then finally, I think, is just to reflect on our relationships. Are the relationships here within this local church a priority for us? Do we see it as important to be involved in the lives of, of 
each other as the local representation of the universal body of Christ, the family of God that meets here. These are the kind of of questions of application and implication that we need to ask ourselves when we realize the reality that there is a stewardship of God's grace in my life and yours. Where was I? Oh, here we go. Okay. So the first, the first truth, right, is that the local church is a stewardship that must be fulfilled. Second, second truth is the local church is a mystery that must be explained. The local church is a mystery that must be explained. And we see that here in verses 4 through 6, where Paul says, by referring to this, that is the mystery, uh, when you read, uh, excuse me, this, uh, he's speaking of uh, what he has written here in verse 2, in uh, in, uh, chapter 2, verses 11 to uh, 22. Uh, By referring to this, what I've read, uh, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is a mystery, Paul says. And we looked last time, we said we noted a mystery was, a, was essentially an open secret. That which had long been hidden in God, that was only knowable when God had revealed it, and that God now had revealed it through his holy apostles and prophets. And the mystery here is, is the, the, the reality that the Jew and Gentile now come to God on equal footing. And this, this mystery... He says, has been hidden, verse 9, since the creation of the world. In other words, it was there all along. God built it into into the fabric of his creation, but it was not revealed until now. But it has been revealed. It has been revealed, but, but just revealing it is not enough. It needs to be explained. And it needs to be explained and it needs to be applied. And that's what the New Testament does. It, it, it reveals it, but then it explains it and it applies it. I think MacArthur has actually said it quite well when he, and he writes, quote, What is not properly understood cannot be properly applied. So it has to be understood. In other words, it needs to be explained so that it can be applied. And as we look here at verses 4 through 6, I think there are three things that, that we can observe here that, that help facilitate the explanation of this mystery. And the first is this in, in verse 4. The, the mystery is understandable. The mystery is understandable. In other words, we should be confident that people can get it. If we explain it to people, they can understand it. They can get it. And that's important, right? If you're going to explain the truth to somebody, you need to know for sure that that once you've done it, that that it's going to be accessible to them, that they can get it. And so once once God had revealed this mystery through through the ministry of the apostles, it's readily available to all who will read and think about it. That's what Paul says here in verse 4, right? By referring to this when you read. And, and, and he's talking about what I've just written here. 
And basically what he's saying is, when you refer to what I've written in chapter 2, you can get it, you can understand it. Even, even untrained theologians, this is, this is not something that you need a theological degree to understand. It's available to every single one of us who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, united to him by faith this morning and possessing the indwelling spirit of God. You don't need an advanced degree to get this. In other words, you're quite capable this morning of understanding the concepts and perceiving the implications of the one new man, right? Verse 15, chapter 2. That he might make the two into one new man. You can get it. You can understand what he's saying and you can, can work out the implications of all of that. Beloved, this speaks of really what we would call the perspicuity of scriptures. That's a nice theological word. It means the clarity or the lucidity of the word of God. In other words, you can open your Bible, whether you are, have a Ph.D. Or, or whether you are you know, still in junior high school, and you can read your Bible and you can understand what has been written there. You can not just understand the words, but, but you can understand the implications of those words. You are capable of that. Now, as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is possible because of the indwelling Spirit of God who helps us to, to hear and understand His Word to us. So does that mean that you don't need a teacher? Well, you know, what's, if, if, that's, if the Scriptures are clear and lucid and, and you have the Spirit of God as your teacher, so what am I doing up here? That's a good question. What am I doing up here? No, it's not saying that there's no place for a teacher, to be sure. Teachers are, are ones who, who work hard at study, who, who have years of, of, of prayerful study of the Word of God and, and can, can help point you to things that maybe you hadn't thought of yet. But they cannot see what is not there, and, and nor can they give meaning to the text. They can draw out implications, help you to think about things you might not have thought about. So is there a role to play? Of course there's a role to play. But what I want to communicate to you here is, is that for anyone who is willing to do the hard work, you can understand this mystery. You can, you can figure out the implications of it generally and specifically to your own life. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.15, right, study to show yourself approved as a workman who does not need to be ashamed handling rightly the word of truth. If you will give yourself to the study of the scriptures, you can understand the one new man and his implications for your life. The more you look, the more you'll understand. So this mystery is understandable. Verse 5, the mystery is available. Notice Paul says, in other generations, it was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed. In other words, what he's saying here is that the Jew and Gentile together in one body, on equal footing before God, was a concept that had not been contemplated in the Old Testament. It had been previously hidden, he says, verse 9. But now... 
with the advent, verse 10, right? Now with the, with the advent of apostolic preaching, the, the, the mystery has now been made known. God uh, has made it known now through the church. Now it's true, there are, there are Old Testament prophecies that, that contemplate Gentiles receiving God's blessings alongside of Israel. That's true, Isaiah has a number of them. For example, Isaiah chapter 2 and verses 1 and following, chapter 11, verse 10, chapter 49, verse 6. But, but these prophecies are speaking about the, the future kingdom of Christ, that future millennial kingdom when Jew and Gentile will come before the Lord to worship him on equal footing. This notion of the body of Christ was a mystery. It was unknown. It was hidden. And what that means is that, is that the idea that there was a church in the Old Testament is, is wrong-headed. There was no church in the Old Testament. There were believers in the Old Testament, to be sure, but there is no church in the Old Testament. Now, the reality here of Jew-Gentile, one body, the church, it was, it was born on Pentecost. The church began on Pentecost. I want to just kind of demonstrate that to you. It began on Pentecost with the coming of the Spirit of God. And you see this in in Acts chapter 1, so it's worth it. I'm going to turn you over there. Acts chapter 1. Beginning in verse 4. This is 40 days after the resurrection. Jesus gathers together his disciples. This is gathering them together. He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. We all know what happens there in the next chapter, right? The Spirit comes upon them ten days later at Pentecost. And the church is birthed at that point. I want you to turn back to uh, John 7, and I'm going to show you something else there that's important in this discussion of when did this mystery church come into existence. It's in John 7. We'll pick it up in verse 37. John 7 and verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Then John editorializes for us here, and he says, But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Future. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the Spirit is 
not given until the glorification of Christ. In other words, until he has accomplished his cross work. And he says, once that has been accomplished, he tells the disciples there that I will send the promise to you. And the promised one is the Spirit himself who came on the day of Pentecost. The church is born on Pentecost. It's our birthday. And the church will continue to be God's working in this world. In other words, all who come to faith in Christ in this this age, in this epoch, become part of this mystery church. Jew and Gentile together, one body, equal footing before God. This age of the church will come to an end. It will come to an end, and and Paul uh, speaks of this here, in, and I'll turn you now to 1 Thessalonians 4, just to, to tie the knot here. There is an ending period for the church. It comes into existence at Pentecost, and, and it ends at the rapture. At the rapture. Verse 13, chapter 4. Paul writes to the Thessalonians here, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and here's the expression I want you to see, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall always be with the Lord, therefore comfort one another with these words. The dead in Christ. Now that, that expression, in Christ, should be very, very familiar for us because it, it occurs over and over again in the first chapter of Ephesians, right? All of the spiritual riches that Paul is praising God for in the first chapter of Ephesians are all available to us in Christ, in union with Christ. And that union with Christ comes about as a result of the indwelling Spirit of God who has been given following the glorification of Christ there at Pentecost. Beloved, under the Old Testament... Under the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, as it were, access to God was restricted by a series of barriers, if you think about it. The high priest could come into the presence of the Holy of Holies but once a year, right? On the Day of Atonement. And that, he needed to get in and get out. Beyond that, there was the court of the priests. They could come closer than than most, but couldn't go all the way into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could do that. Outside of that was the court of the men. Outside of that was the court of the women. And outside of that, further still, was the court of the Gentiles. So there was a series of barriers that restricted, that kept people away from God. We were not all, as it were, on equal footing with equal access to God. But all of that changed when the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom in the crucifixion of Christ and it was thrown wide open so that we can all boldly now come and have access to the Father in the name of Christ, right? That's the message 
of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and following, and I'm not going to track it down for you. You understand this? So something seriously uh, uh, earth-shattering has happened. And we now have this equal access to God. The mystery is now available, what was once hidden. Third, the mystery is transformational in verse 6. Paul now gets specific here. He's finally going going to detail what this mystery is. The Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He spells out the mystery here using three parallel expressions. You can can see them here, right? Fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers. There are three nouns, and and they are each um, have the same Greek prefix, soon, which means with, added to the noun. And, and he does it this way intentionally. Paul likes triplets anyway. But he does this in order to spell out the, the earth-shattering implications of what it now means that the mystery has been revealed, that the way has been thrown open. And he begins with, um, verse 6 here, with fellow heirs. We are fellow heirs of the same blessing. In other words, the Jew and Gentile uh, together receive the blessing. And what is that blessing? The blessing is God's promise to Abraham. God had promised Abraham that that through him, through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. What wasn't disclosed to him uh, was that it was uh, through the gospel that all the families of the earth would actually become his spiritual children. That reality we don't understand has has not been made known until the mystery has been revealed. And Paul speaks of this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, where he says there, if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. In other words, until the mystery was made known, the Gentiles had no way of knowing they were going to be actually children of Abraham. They would have known and the Jews would have known that through the promise to Abraham, the world would be blessed. But what they couldn't know and what they didn't know is that they would come in on equal footing. They would be transformed into Abraham's spiritual children. Paul says the same thing in in Romans chapter 4 and verse 16 where he says all who are of the faith of Abraham become his spiritual children. He becomes the spiritual father of all who believe. So we are fellow heirs now in the promise to Abraham. Beyond that, we are fellow members, Paul says here, of the same body, right? Fellow members of the same body. We are the the new humanity, the the spiritual body of Christ. And Paul identifies this as the church. Back chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, says he put all things in subjection under Christ's feet, And gave Christ his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There there was no way to know this incredible reality that we would become the body of Messiah, the spiritual body of Messiah. And finally, he says, we are fellow partakers of the promise. Fellow partakers of the promise. What promise? The promise is for the indwelling Spirit of God. We become partakers of the promise of the indwelling Spirit of God. We see that in chapter 1, verse 13, 
where he says, In him you also, after having listened to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the promised Holy Spirit. The promised Holy Spirit. When was the Holy Spirit promised and to whom was the Holy Spirit promised? And the answer is it was to Israel. And you see it in Ezekiel chapter 36. So go ahead and turn there to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. The prophet is writing here to Israel. He's talking about their future restoration. He says to them, Over, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This was their promise, the promise of the spirit. And it is a transformational reality when the Spirit takes up residence within us. No longer is the covenant on stone, on tablets of stone external to us. It is now written in our very hearts by the indwelling Spirit of God. This now, this defining mark of the new covenant, is now available to Gentiles. And that transforms Gentiles. So when you put all this together, this, this threefold stress on, on the together, right? That, that you are fellow members, fellow partakers, fellow heirs, so forth. When you put it all together, what it means is, is that, as one writer says, it emphasizes the obliteration of any distinctions in God's way of bringing salvation to people. The distinctions have been obliterated. That's why I say it's transformational. In other words, that, that it... When we come now, we have direct and unhindered access to God the Father. That's transformational. What are the implications of all of this? Well, one implication for sure is that ritual no longer advantages, 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 advantage, or disadvantages anyone. It no longer advantages or disadvantages anybody, right? Before, in order to grow close to God, you had to, I got to stay close to my microphone. In order to grow close to God, you had to comply with the temple rituals. Now, they have been obliterated. Now it doesn't matter. Ritual doesn't make you closer to God. And the absence of, of ritual doesn't hold you back from God. That's, that's a dramatic transformation, my friends, in the way we approach God. And the implications of that are huge. Beyond that, human distinctions no longer advantage or disadvantage us. All right, Paul says that in, in, uh, in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. Where he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, in the past, if you were a woman, you could only come so close. And a man could come a little closer yet. And the priesthood could come closer still. And the high priest could come even closer. And the Gentiles could barely see. 
But now, all of that has been obliterated. Our access now is provided unhindered via our faith union with the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, right? I am the way. I am the way. And Jesus is available to any who will come to him in faith. So the local church is this mystery that needs to be explained to people. Third, and finally, the local church is a witness that must be displayed. All right, it's a stewardship that must be fulfilled, it's a mystery that must be explained, and it is a witness that must be displayed. Verse 10, following, chapter 3 of Ephesians. Paul says, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul says in verse 9 that that God has revealed to him the administration of the mystery, the, the plan of the mystery, the plan of salvation, if you like, of reconciling humanity to himself for a purpose, verse 10, so that this manifold wisdom might be now made known to the angelic authorities. Manifold wisdom. Um, The beautifully complex wisdom of God. The many-colored wisdom of God. The the many-sided wisdom of God. That's, that's what this Greek word is getting at. This is, this is something very, very unique. And it is displayed through the church, you see. And it might be made known, verse 10, through the church. And, and it's not through something the church does. It's through what the church is that this is made known. This this incredibly, beautifully complex wisdom of God is made known to the universe through the very existence of the church. The church is a multiracial, multicultural community made up of Jew and Gentile that display the infinite and richly diverse wisdom of God. It is on display. And notice Paul in verse 9 where he he talks about the the God who created all things. He makes a creation linkage here. And I think that's significant because what that indicates is that that this display of the wisdom of God is on par with the the wisdom of the original creation. In other words, the, the, the church itself, the existence of the church is no less spectacular than the very universe that God spoke into existence. It is, it is the creation of a new humanity in which the very presence of God dwells in the spirit. That is the, is the complex, multivariated, colored wisdom of God that rivals all that you look around and see. I mean, think about this with me. When Adam and Eve were created, God walked with them in the garden, right? That's pretty amazing. You think about that. In the new humanity, recreated in Christ, God doesn't walk with me. 
God now in the person of his spirit resides within me. Within me. Let that sink in a minute. The God of glory resides within you. Within you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and and verse 13 where he says, By one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. It's pretty impressive when you look around the universe, right? You look through the telescope, you look through the microscope, you go out into the night and just look up into the night sky with the, uh, with the unaided eye. You look at the complexity of the human body. I love watching nature shows and, and just seeing the, the glory of God's creation in the animal kingdom. I mean, it's incredible. And in the creation of the church, we have the wisdom of God put on display. I would say of equal perhaps even greater glory in the church of Jesus Christ. God has planned the church from all eternity. You see in verse 11, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we said last time, the church is not an afterthought. It was part of God's eternal purpose. And and he brought it about in space and time through the cross of of Jesus Christ and the coming of the Spirit. And why? He says here, it is to demonstrate, right? To demonstrate to the fallen angels, that's the the rulers and authority. I think think it's to demonstrate to them the, the reality of their final and ultimate defeat. Jesus Christ now rules over the demonic realm by virtue of his enthronement following the resurrection. You see that in chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. We, chapter 2, verse 2, by virtue of our union with Christ, no longer live under the dominion of those rulers and authorities, the demonic realm. Beyond that, in reconciling the fallen sinners and and bringing them together as the one new man, God is declaring victory horizontally and vertically that everyone can see. And this is a message to to the fallen angelic realm. This reconciliation, verse 12, gives us unhindered access to the Father, right? In whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. And it, and it stands out to the angelic realm concerning the God's unsearchable and complex wisdom. When the angels fell, they were cut off from God. No hope of redemption. No, no mechanism of, of restoration and reconciliation. We on the other hand, who were once God's enemies, have now been brought near to God. This displays the the glory of God, and it displays it to the angelic realm for whom there is no redemption, and it displays it for all the rest of creation to see as well. 
In light of that, when you get a hold of that, that magnificent reality, then you, like the Apostle Paul, can say, don't lose heart at my tribulation, verse 13. Don't let it bum you out that I'm in prison because of this. I'm there for your glory. I'm there as a, as a direct result of the reality that there is then one new man in Christ. I'm there because of the earth-shaking nature of this gospel message. So friends, in light of all of that, we have to ask a question. Here's the question you have to ask. Why must we, why must the witness of the local church be displayed? I mean, because that's what Paul's basically saying here. Is, it, is this local church here at Foothill has to, has to be displayed. The mystery here has to be displayed. We cannot keep it hidden. Why? Well, number one, because it's true. How's that? Because it's true. And truth has to be made known. Because it reveals the Father's eternal plan for for Christ to conquer sin and redeem a people for himself. That's why it has to be displayed. It has to be displayed because it declares to the demonic realm that they've lost. It has to be displayed because it, it provides humanity's only hope to overcome the effects of Adam's sin. Right? Ethnic violence, pride, selfishness, lack of compassion. It has to be displayed because it is the unifying reality that lies behind the events of the last 2,000 years. And it has to be displayed because like the heavens that can't help but declare the glory of God, so the glory of God in the church can't help but show itself. It must shine out. In other words, we are a light that cannot be hidden. Or to use the metaphor, we are a city on a hill. We have to show it. We have to show it. So the question we ask ourselves is, how are we doing? How are we doing with it? This witness cannot be concealed. But how are we doing? May God continue to pour out his grace and mercy on this local church so that we can fulfill the responsibilities that we have to be the light to this community in Upland and the surrounding valley. Let's pray. Our Father, in the fullness of time, you sent forth your Son, born of a woman, born under the law, 
that you might redeem those who are under the law, and that you might create the one new man. This mystery church, this earth-shaking reality, that men and women drawn from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation are united together in a local fellowship that becomes a family of God. That becomes the temple of God. In whom you place your spirit among us. A people whom you have equipped and gifted and given a stewardship to minister that gift one to another. So that the angelic realm that looks on and in the world around us that looks on, they see something that they cannot explain. They see the glory of God. Our Father, we confess that we don't always live up to our commission, to our, to our stewardship. We confess that at times we forget the, that the church is not ours personally or even corporately. We don't get to set its direction or, or to um, negotiate its, its purpose or its membership even. But it is your creation. So our Father, may you renew our passion for this church. The Apostle Paul was happy, willing to suffer for the sake of the church. Father, you have not called us to suffer, but you have called us to live for the glory of the church. So may you help us to fulfill that. For Jesus' sake, amen.